Hi, everybody. This is Peter Diamandis here for our next episode of Exponential Wisdom with my dear friend and my coach, Dan Sullivan. Dan, a pleasure to be with you, pal, and super excited for our conversation today. And let me frame it for our podcast listeners. So there's so much exponential change going on right now that is going to transform our lives in very fundamental ways. And as I think about it, the question is, when you know that something is coming, do any of us really stop and appreciate the implications of that transformation, right? The first order implications. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd love to discuss this with you. I'd love to throw up a few of my sort of predictions mm -hmm. from 2020 to 2030 mm -hmm. and, and brainstorm our mm -hmm. implication predictions. Does that sound good to you? That sounds great, yes. And uh, it's a very exciting list that we've chosen from here, Peter. So I'm very interested in the first one because we shared this right from the beginning of our relationship and we've been talking nonstop about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So here's the first prediction. And that is in the next decade, 2020 to 2030, mm -hmm. biotechnology is going to transform our lifespan. So the prediction is that by 2030, 100 years old will become the new 60. Mm -hmm. That science is going to add an additional 20 to 30 healthy years in our lifespan. So, pal, I believe that. I'm working towards that. You're working towards that. And we've had many of our conversations and exponential wisdom about it. So mm -hmm. what's the implications if we really do add on the average 20 plus healthy years on people's lifespan, mm -hmm. let's make a list of the implications because this is where entrepreneurs should be looking for opportunities and people who are not changing looking to become disrupted. Well, I think one thing, and you know, this isn't in the area of science or technology, but it has enormous social implications. And one of them is very positive. I think people are going to be working longer. I think one concept that's going to go out is retirement as we presently know it, or the year where retirement becomes mandatory will be moved further back. In other words, it'll be 70 or 75. Big societal shifts happen modestly, and they don't happen in fell swoops like technology does. That was one thing. But the other thing is that most of the social welfare foundation of modern societies is really geared to people dying around 80. And if they are dependent upon government social programs and they're living to 90 or they're living to 100, it puts enormous strain institutionally on society. So on the one hand, I think people who really want to be productive for longer in life can be more productive. But a lot of people are still going along with the old notion that they're going to be taken care of at an earlier age. So there's two shifts right there. And, you know, this is being deeply, deeply discussed at all institutional levels, at government bureaucracy. And I would say that. And the other thing is that I think that society is going to be more dominated by older people than by younger people. Mm, interesting. I think what goes along with what you just said is the notion that social security is going to go bankrupt much faster. A lot of nations, even if they are well-prepared, are going to have serious mm -hmm. issues with their finances. Yeah. So they're going to have to come up with brand new agreements, if you would. The most contentious issue is going to be pensions for civil servants. So government workers across, let's just say, the United States at the state level, at the municipal level, and at the federal level have granted themselves the richest pensions known to <laughs> humankind. I mean, 
I was reading about sheriffs in small towns or mayors in small towns in California who had incomes of two, three hundred thousand dollars while they were active, but they're giving themselves two hundred and fifty thousand dollar a year pensions after they're inactive. <laughs> and the truth is, you can't tell the difference between when they're active and when they're inactive. Oh, that's unfortunately sad and not funny. No, no, but this is a liability on society. It's taxpayers, and so I think it becomes a contentious issue. Does the government reach the point where it's saying, you know, everything we promise, we're only going to give you half? So I think each of these is a point for a conflict in society. Do younger people want to be paying for the welfare of older people as we go along? Another one is the whole insurance game. And I know you spend a lot of time with insurance. And there are two types of insurance, right? There's one type that when you stop paying the benefits end, there's term and life, whole life. Is that the terminology? Yeah, yeah, term and basically cash values. And there's an intermediate, which is called universal life. But the two are really, do you have an investment part or are you just paying for, you know, it's like airplane insurance. You pay for a flight and if something bad happens, somebody gets paid, but there's no value to the insurance policy. Babs and I have invested for 30 years in cash value. And there's some advantages to that if you're thinking long range, which we are. But I think the big thing, Peter, is an idea that you brought where we had a targeted podcast on the insurance issue, and it has to do with self-selected groups with much finer criteria of actually belonging to an insured group. My feeling, I think the best way to describe what you were talking about were insurance communities, that a community of people who have common interests and they have standards that you have to meet to join the community will insure themselves. And I see a lot more custom design insurance committees because we still want to spread risk. So the implication of living longer, though, in the insurance business is that if I'm living longer, the insurance Mm -hmm. company delays their payout by 30 years, and I pay into that insurance for 30 years. So it's a boom to the insurance companies. Well, for example, because I've been involved in this industry from the standpoint of who my clients are for 45 years now, and about 10 years ago, without much fanfare, all the insurance companies extended their premium payment period from age 95 to 120. And nobody made a big deal about this. The actuaries just shifted. And the recognition is that a child being born today has a good chance of living to 120. Amazing. So what other implications are there with people living 30 years? Is it less people in old age homes? Because, you know, my definition and yours of, you know, 100 is in your 60 is that people have the cognition, the aesthetics, and the mobility. So less people retiring, so old jobs are not opening up. What else is happening as people are living longer? One big thing, as I see, another area of inequality in society, because you and I can write checks for every new longevity assistance that comes along from the scientific and technological world. And Babs and I spend, you know, a very considerable amount of money every year investigating new therapies to investigate new types. We were introduced by you, for example, to genetic mapping when it first became 
reasonable. I mean, the first one cost half a billion dollars for one person, and now what is the going right now for gene mapping, Peter? I don't know what. Uh, for a whole genome sequencing. Like really good, like HLI. Yeah, it's under a thousand bucks. You know, it's approaching a hundred bucks very quickly. But even for a lot of people, they say, well, why isn't that covered by my insurance? Well, it's not going to be for quite a while until somebody can be paid for you having a gene map or they can take less of a risk on your behalf. A friend that I've known for about 15 years has just created a $10 million prize for the scientists that can prove conclusively that genes continually modify themselves in relationship to experience. So Hmm. a gene map is only a snapshot of where you are, but actually that if you continue to do snapshots, whether someone's life conditions were worsening or, you know, their health was worsening, that the genes are actually modifying themselves. It's a theory, you know, it's a thesis, but he said it would make a big difference as a paradigm shift if we find that genes are continually modifying themselves to external conditions, to internal conditions. Actually, Christian Codicini is the architect of the prize. The HeroX competition. So I think if people were living longer, an extra 30 years, two industries that would get a lot of benefit is education. Mm -hmm. I think people, as they are in their later decades with more free time, if they have done financial plans, so there's a whole implication of the financial industry, right? People are going to have to do Mm -hmm. better financial planning. They're going to have to save more, Mm -hmm. or they're going to have to continue to have a job. But then what do you do with those years? I think one thing is people are going to travel more. I think Mm -hmm. it might be an Mm -hmm. increase in travel. And I think an increase in education. Yes. I think people are going to want to seek to go back to school for that additional educational experience. So I think those two industries will benefit significantly from living. Yeah. One of the things that's very interesting, and I've been a big sports fan all my life, The sports you played as a kid, you tend to be interested in as a spectator as you go through life. But they find that around 50, 55 right now, people's interest in spectator sports drops off a cliff. Interesting. And this is why you see the mania for big contracts on the part of athletes today. They want to have their money in the bank before the game ends. (laughs) And my feeling is that we can keep people now alive a lot longer than they have any purpose to be alive. Yes. Entertainment and tourism are one way of keeping people's minds stimulated because a lot of people, their body just keeps going whether they have any mind to be alive whatsoever. I mean, the the heart just keeps beating, our lungs just keep getting rid of carbon dioxide. So my feeling is boredom is going to be a huge issue of the future of people just living a long time but being really, really bored. Yeah, so things that address that boredom will be business opportunities. Education and community work. Education and tourism. Yeah, yeah. So what else as people live longer is going to happen? Can we squeeze something else? What's another implication of people living 30 years more? Will politics change? Yes. Will where they live change? Mm-hmm. Will healthcare dollars spend significantly increase? So the healthcare industry, as people are kept alive longer, healthier, interesting, right? Because we spend more money on healthcare the older we get. Yes. And if your healthcare dollars were in your 50s and 60s were maintained in your 70s, 80s and 90s, it's increasing the massive healthcare spend. Right? So, even if you're healthy, you feel good, mm-hmm. right? Even if Dan and Peter 
you know, I'm in my later 50s, my healthcare spend is much greater than I was in my 20s. If I kept it as it was mm-hmm. right now and I feel great for the next 30, 40 years, it's still going to be a net increase in healthcare mm-hmm. spend. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I have to tell you, you and I are outliers on this whole topic. I agreed. Here's the thing. Outliers are called outliers for a reason. The vast majority of people, they're just living longer. And you know Lisa Sini because she's an A360 client and coach client. And she designs really, really unique senior living communities. They call them communities because one of the mistakes that was made, I think very fundamental mistakes made about retirement living, is that you have people all of one peer age who are in a community together, and there's no intergenerational communication. And so what Lisa does, she develops communities which are actually small towns. So you have children there, you have people who are working. And one of the things is malls. We got all these malls which are emptying out because the whole framework and foundation for retail sales in the country is changing fundamentally. And what used to be a good idea of having this big covered building You know, in northern climes, anyway, you have these big covered buildings. And they said, you know, you can just create a community taking advantage of these malls and put condos in and put commercial space in and start putting shops that people would ordinarily like to have in sort of a small community. See, my feeling is that everything gets repurposed. I don't think anything is really eliminated, but it gets repurposed. And I think all the shopping malls unless they're really unique and they can compete with online in a certain way, they're going to have to be repurposed. And I think these communities around malls were during the winter months anyway. And, you know, I'm a North and East guy. I'm not a Southern California guy. (laughs) And uh, my feeling is that these things will be repurposed, but people love community and they like community with as much age variety in it, as much activity variety as possible. It's very stimulating. To be in a community where all the houses look the same and everybody's 75 years old is a sure way of killing people's brains before their bodies die. Oh, my God. I completely agree in both directions. Here's another implication, and maybe we'll go to another prediction. Marriage, Mm -hmm. till death do you part. I'm not sure that if we're living to 100, the institution of marriage is going to stay unchanged. What do you think about that? I mean, the statistics tell us it's already been shifting for 30, 40 years, just the number of multiple marriages that people have in their life. You know, I'm on my second. I had a practice one for five years, and then I've had the other one for 30, <laughs> 32 years. You know, I had to practice before I was good enough to find the second wife. So my sense is that the image is still out there, and it's an image from the 1930s or 40s. You don't know him, but his name was Bob Buford, and Bob was a real fan of Peter Drucker, who lived right up the coast from you in Santa Barbara, and he actually created the Peter Drucker Organization. He actually took 50 entrepreneurs who were selling their businesses at age between 40 and 55, and he did a research project on tracing them what their life was like five years before they sold their business and then five years after. And of the 50 who sold their business and they were married, 43 of them were divorced within the first five years. Amazing. Okay, now you haven't asked the important question, who triggered the divorce? Oh, that is interesting. The woman, huh? The woman, because she had established a completely independent life from her husband, but there's one question she didn't have the answer to, how much is my half? (laughs) 
Interesting. Yeah. All right. Let's leave that morbid subject. Variety is a function of choice. If you give people a lot of choice, you get a lot of variety. (laughs) So just to summarize here, as people are thinking about society adding 20, 30, 40 healthy years onto everybody's life, Mm -hmm. there are going to be implications on a lot of industries across the board. All right, let's look at another prediction for the next 10 years, next decade. And it's a prediction that I think we're starting to see materialize is that where we get our protein, where we get our meat, mm-hmm. our beef, our chicken, our fish, our hamburgers, and all of that is going to change. Let me paint it in the following way. Today, humanity uses one-third of the non-ice landmass of the Earth, one-third of the Earth's surface, not occupied by ice, for raising livestock, mm-hmm. cows, sheep, you know, goats, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And we're massively overfishing the oceans because as people become wealthier and we see more abundance, people want higher value protein. Mm -hmm. So a lot of money, a lot of technology is going in right now to reinventing our meat products. And this comes Mm -hmm. in two forms. One is lab-grown meats, stem Mm -hmm. cells, if you would, of taking a stem cell from a cow or a fish Mm -hmm. or chicken and growing the muscle Mm -hmm in a lab and then producing the product. Mm -hmm. Another version is using vegetable equivalents. And you know this, Dan, we've spoken about this. Peas, actually. Peas are the real big protein here in Canada. For Beyond Meat, right? Yeah, for Beyond Meat. the founders of Beyond Meat, and I hope to have them at A360 this year. So the prediction is that over the next 10 years, where we get our meat products, our protein products, it's going to be cheaper, better, better tasting, and much better for the environment. Mm-hmm. So what are the implications of that? Well, this one, I think, you know, things that people do every day, and in this case, you know, at least three times a day, probably change the fastest because it's a matter of individual choice within people's present budget. So there's a certain amount of upfront investment in making this change. But my feeling is this is one that will be incredibly consumer-driven. And what I've seen, and talking to my team members who are 10, 20, 30 years, in some cases, 50 years younger than I am, they're just already experimenting. But the one thing with food is people like what they like. And if you present them something that tastes good and it does what food's supposed to do, which is to energize you, they're really flexible in terms of what form they'll purchase it in and what form they'll consume it in. So my feeling is that this is the easiest one. And when I was looking at your list, this is the one that I'm seeing massively right around me in Toronto. But I'm not a fast food guy. So what are the first order implications of this? I mean, for example, countries like Argentina and Chile Mm -hmm. and Texas, the country of Texas, that get a lot of their income (laughs) from cows could have a financial downturn. So there's going to be geopolitical implications of this, potentially. Oh, no, there's no question. I mean, there are still people on the planet who will get their protein any way they can get it. You know, they're not in a position to be choosing. But I would say if I'm a cattle rancher who's delivering, you know, five, ten thousand animals to market every year, you've got to be planning that sometime in the next five years, you're going to have to make a switch in how you're approaching this, repurposing your land or whatever you're doing. There's no question in my mind. And that countries that are depending upon this as their you know main source, Argentina more than the United States. I mean, United States does not depend upon meat for its economy. It's got so many different types of economy, but there's a lot of countries that have this. And 
the other thing is that it's expensive. It's very, very expensive. The whole business of cattle ranch. I grew up on a farm, and there were cattle farms near where I did. And I just remembered how extraordinarily intricate the process was. You could have a freeze and lose 10, 15% of your herd with a bad freeze for two or three days. Let me throw out a few other first-order implications top of my mind. Number one, as mm-hmm. protein becomes cheaper and healthier for you, we're going to have an increased state of health. Yep. And we're going to have an increased average global intelligence, right? A lot of countries, if you don't give the children and the pregnant women proper food products mm-hmm. during pregnancy, during the first year or two of life, you lose a lot of IQ points, and that's a massive yeah. detriment. That's one area. Another area I think about is the notion that we are going to start to be able to give back land to nature. We'll be able to go and say these grazing lands can go back to being wild Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And we also use a large amount of our feed stock is ag land. So what happens when the food we're raising to feed cows with gets reduced and that food can be more available. So those are some environmental benefits of moving in this direction. There's obviously mm-hmm. ecological benefits because mm-hmm. lab-grown meats generate less methane, use less water, use less land, all those things. You know, I'm a kind of a real student, especially of American history, and one of the things that's never talked about was the rapid growth of the United States during the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, but right from the beginning in the original colonies, the average American had about 2,800 calories of nutrition every single day when the world average was about 17, 1800. Yeah, makes a difference. And you're talking about the brain of motivation, ambition, the willingness to study, the willingness to learn, the willingness to risk is all a function of nutrition. Uh, Absolutely. And if you, and also how you use the 24 hours in your day (laughs) matters, right? If you have to go and hunt for food, but if the food is hopefully two times cheaper, five times cheaper, and better for you and higher grade proteins. And by the way, it's produced locally. Another thing, by the way, is impact in transportation. What percentage of transportation is moving cows and livestock? It'd be interesting to know, trucking, trains, and so forth, Mm because these labs would be in downtown Mumbai, downtown Detroit. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to move the food to the plate. Yeah. It's grown locally. Yeah. I was in the military in the 60s, and I was in South Korea, and they didn't use local milk. The army would never use local milk because there were possible problems with the supply and where it came from for security reasons, for health reasons. So they took milk in the United States, and they dried it. They turned it into powder, and then it was shipped to Korea, and it was reconstituted. And when I got there for the first two weeks, I said, you know, I was a big milk drinker growing up. I said, I can't get used to this. And then I was there, and after two weeks, it was milk. And then I came back to the United States to drink the milk that I was used to before. I couldn't drink the stuff for the. Wow. But the whole point is how fast human beings will adjust to a new food source. You know, I think it's about two or three weeks. And if you have it every day, you adjust to it, and then it becomes normal. Humans are great at taking abnormal things and normalizing them real fast. Agreed. I think one of the biggest implications as well here is going to be fisheries. So as you know, we are Mm -hmm. massively destroying, I mean, the numbers are staggering. I don't have them in front of me. Overfishing. We're overfishing. Overfishing massively. So, you know, I love sushi. I love it. I love the highest quality, you know, (laughs) tuna and 
or hamachi. And there was a time during which I stopped eating because of this. And then I weakened and started eating again. And I shouldn't probably be disclosing that. But I wonder, you know, if there can be a sushi that's made as lab-grown tuna mm-hmm. that tastes as good and, by the way, has no mercury in it, right? Big issue. Yeah. You know, one of the issues with sushi is it's high in mercury. You basically are going to compete against the fishing fleets. And if you can provide a cheaper, better-tasting, healthier version of mm-hmm. tuna, to use that as an example, the implications on increased health, increased intelligence, but decimation of the fishing fleets is a big issue. But it's mm-hmm. it's benefit of the oceans, right? Yeah. The replenishment of the large fish. Peter, if I could ask you a question about that, yeah. because I just wrote down Peter's weakness, Sushi. I just have this <laughs> you know, on your file. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. How much over present prices of sushi would you pay if you enjoyed it, it had good taste in that, because the pricing mechanism of the marketplace really depends upon how fast people could do it. But if you had a really substitute that you know was made out of lab-grown protein and it satisfied you aesthetically, it looked like sushi, yeah. it had the texture of sushi, and the taste was... Let's say it was acceptable to you, but not that it was the greatest sushi. How much higher, you know, with your purchasing price would be willing to go just to be part of the leading edge of changing over to this? So, because that's really the question is, can you make money at doing this? Yeah, so it either has to taste much better or it has to be much cheaper. Mm-hmm. I don't think it can be almost as good and pay more. No, it's got to be a magnitude of improvement, yeah. Yeah, I mean, any kind of change is a 10x requirement. Something's got to be 10 times cheaper, 10 times better to get people to change. Yeah. Now, laws can change that, right? You can basically have, like, for example, we've talked about this, the electric car industry, $90 billion is being invested in electric cars. Why? Not that the car manufacturers are being environmentally conscious. It's that national governments Mm-hmm. Norway, Sweden, Germany, Australia, other number of nations have said after 2030, or in China, after 2040, you can't sell internal combustion engine cars in our country anymore. So mm-hmm. policy is changing that. So you could imagine mm-hmm. policy saying no more fishing like we did with whaling, no more whaling, mm-hmm. you know, if we we're going to replenish stocks. So. But I will say beyond meat sausage, mm-hmm. I prefer, so I will eat that and pay more for it because I love the taste of it more than anything else. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it's all taste. Yeah, taste, it's all taste. And, taste and price. And it looks like sausage. And it looks like sweet. sausage, yes. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, this was fun to talk about the implications of It is, tea. and here's the thing. Anytime you make, uh, let's just say, a change to food habits, yeah. you're automatically changing a thousand other things, too. Interesting. So food is so fundamental to us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's going to change yeah. a lot of things. Yeah, but if you compare our diets today to, well, let's say when I was growing up, you know, the diversity of food that I consume in a month is easily three times what I was consuming when I was growing up. And I'm not at the cutting edge of change with this particular aspect. So my feeling is people like variety. 
and they'll always be interested in something new. They'll always be interested in some change or shift. And then there's trends and fads. I can remember when all the pasta restaurants opened up in the 1970s in Toronto. And, you know, I mean, pasta was good for you. You couldn't eat too much pasta, you know. And I remember, you know, having, you know, what was the one that's the heart killer? There's one pasta and it's all cheese. And we were being told this is really great for you. This is really great for you. So there's food habits and trends. And there's a snob appeal, too. People have a status of wanting to be cool where other people are not cool. So that enters into the picture here. But food Uh is really fundamental. And just making sure that people have enough nutrition that their IQs can improve, I think, is a really, really good goal. I think that's a terrific goal. All right, well, why don't we wrap on this here, and then maybe in our next episode, we can look at two more predictions and discuss what the implications are. And if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, you should be thinking about what are the business opportunities that come out of these Mm -hmm. implications. Sound good to you? I agree. All right. Very stimulating for me. Awesome. All right, Dan, see you next time, pal. Thank you, Peter.